It's good to be back with you. It's nice to see Mark and Joe back from their sojourn in the world last week. But glad you've come back to the house of the Lord. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for your family, the church. Uh, and Lord God, thank you for your word that talks about this. I pray that uh, you will speak to each one of us where we are and where we need to be so that we will get closer to you and closer to each other. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, all of us come from a family, and all of us have a family. If we're single, most of us want a family. Most of our deepest memories and experiences involve our families. And that can be both for good and for bad. Because of the closeness of families, our joys are magnified, but so are our hurts, sorrows, and regrets. Little things, which might be forgotten with somebody else, uh, can stay with us for a lifetime if done with members of the family. As they say, blood is thicker than water. That's why divorce and estrangement within the family are so tragic, hurt so deeply, and cut us so much. Now, God created marriage, and he designed the family. The family is the fundamental unit in society, and not just in our society, but in every culture and society in the world. So deeply is the idea of family built into human nature that one can rightly say families are spiritual entities. In Ephesians 5, marriage is specifically described as a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. This is what the Bible calls a type or a shadow. A type or a shadow is a physical thing that points beyond itself to something greater. The temple in Jerusalem was a type pointing to the true temple, namely Jesus Christ, and those connected with him by faith, uh, the church. In fact, in the New Testament, approximately 11 or 12 times, the church is specifically called the temple of God. Now, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16, we see this same thing regarding the family. This passage is telling us that the church is the true family. The church is what our earthly families are pointing to. In fact, there is a deep interrelation between our earthly families and the church. Now, this passage is in three sections, so we will look at them in order. Verses 1 and 2 show us that the church is indeed a family. Verses 3 through 8 reveal the interrelation between our earthly families and the church and show us the responsibility that our earthly families have to the church. And then verses 9 through 16 point us to the responsibility that the church has to its own family members. Taken together, these verses are telling us that families take care of their own. So let's begin with 
1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul explicitly called the church the household of God. The Greek word uh, he uses for household can be translated house or household family. Although the church is sometimes compared to a building or a temple, even when that is done, it is always said to be a living or growing building or temple. And the context of chapter 3, verse 15, indicates that household or family is the correct translation. The church consists of living people, the living people of the living God. The church is a family. Now, this is one of the emphases in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the emphasis is on marriage, family, and physical descendants. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is on the family of God. There's a shift from physical offspring to spiritual offspring. And when we become born again, we become God's spiritual offspring. We become his sons and daughters. Additionally, on five occasions in the New Testament, it says that God has adopted us into his family. In other words, we become God's true everlasting family. And what could be better than that? To be children of God himself. In fact, Jesus sharply distinguishes one's earthly family from himself and our spiritual family in Christ. In Matthew 10, verses 35 through 37, Jesus said this. He said, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, that is strong language. <clears throat> he does not mean that we must look down on or despise our parents or our children. He's using a Hebrew idiom of comparison by which he's comparing our love for our earthly families with our love for himself. In effect, he is saying, your love for anyone else, including your own earthly families, whom you do love and whom you should love, should be as nothing compared to your overriding love for me. And this was not just a one-time thing with him. He said similar things on a number of occasions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, are any of us there? I don't think so. But what he says is exactly correct. Why? Because he created us. He enables to take our every breath. He and he alone redeemed us. He and he alone gives us eternal life. 
and he will give us glorious new bodies on a glorious new earth where we will be with him and we'll be like him forever as a family with no pain, no sorrow, nothing but love, joy, and fulfillment beyond our wildest imaginations. Yes, indeed. Now, our love for and commitment to Christ of necessity reflects itself in our love for and commitment to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book entitled When the Church Was a Family. He studied ancient Mediterranean culture and found that allegiance to family and siblings took precedence even over a person's relationship with one's spouse. It's therefore not surprising to learn that the Greek word for brother or sister, Adelphus, is found nearly 350 times in the New Testament alone. Jesus and the apostles uh, take the fact that we are the new true family in Christ very seriously. Now here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul strongly reinforces the idea of the church as a family. He explicitly uses the language of family to describe the church. Uh, and this is showing us that our earthly families are the type uh, and the church is the true family. We know that because our earthly families will end when we die. If a member of our earthly families is not a believer, after they die, we will never see them again. On the other hand, our spiritual family, the church, will last forever. Now, there are several practical implications of this. First, the terms brother and sister for people in the church must actually mean something. And that something needs to be a lived out reality in our daily lives. If we take the words of verses 1 and 2 seriously and really look at older men as if they were our own earthly father, uh, older women as our own earthly mother, younger men as our own earthly brothers, and younger women as our own earthly sisters, the people in the church will become much more personal to us. We might even start treating them like beloved members of a real family because they are our real family. Now second, by differentiating men and women, younger and older, Paul is recognizing that different types of people need to be treated in different ways. Now all people, regardless of age or sex, need to be shown love and respect. However, we naturally show and should show a certain level of respect and deference to our parents and older people in general that we do not typically show to our brothers and sisters or younger people in general. And we do that simply because of their age. On the other hand, we typically can be a little freer with our siblings and younger people in general, especially younger men. Now, these dynamics apply in the church since the church is a family. Third, 
These verses are also telling us that people should not be sharply uh, or harshly treated even when they have done wrong, but should be exhorted and appealed to. The underlying meaning for the word translated sharply rebuke literally is strike at. Church leaders and Christians in general are not to act that way. Therefore, Paul's use of appeal to applies to all four categories of the people he listed in verses one and two. The word translated appeal to is often translated as exhort or encourage, but it also carries the meaning of request, implore, comfort, and even treat somebody in a congenial, conciliatory, or friendly manner. Now, when having to counsel people or correct people in the church, we must remember always to speak the truth in love, as Paul told us in Ephesians 4, verse 15. And both sides of that equation are important. Truth stated without love is not really truth. And love expressed without truth is not really love. Now fourth, at the end of verse two, Paul specifically says that younger women should be treated as sisters in all purity. Paul adds that important phrase because sexual temptation is always present. Sexual sin can be a great problem in the church. It can ruin one's ministry, one's reputation, family, and the church itself. And we all know of pastors or other church leaders who have committed fornication or adultery with someone in the church. Sexual sin is a betrayal of a trust that has been given us by God. In fact, sexual sin in the church is worse than we might think. What do I mean? What I mean is, because the church is a family, indeed, it is God's family, sexual sin within the church amounts to incest in the family of God, which is an abomination to God. Now, probably most people in the church who commit fornication or adultery do not think of that. They should. Fifth, we all know that there can be good families and bad families. Now, this is Christ's family, so it should be the very best of families. The lifeblood of any relationship, particularly of a family, is communication. Communication and contact, involvement and engagement. How involved are we with the other believers in the church? For many people, the answer is not so much. Certainly, nothing like the amount and level of contact and communication we naturally have with our earthly families. For example, what would you think of an earthly family, mom, dad, kids, that only saw each other once a week for an hour or two? It wouldn't be much of a family. Yet our spiritual family, the church will last forever, whereas our earthly families will not. In the same way, think of the involvement, help, and concern we naturally have with our earthly families. 
If your earthly brother or sister needs financial help or a place to stay, we naturally will provide it for them. If the kids need food or clothing, we'll get it for them without a second thought. And if our parents need medical or other assistance, we will do what we can to make sure they get it. Yet when these or similar needs arise within our spiritual family, which, as I say, is the true family that will last forever, are we as naturally inclined to provide that level of involvement, help, and assistance? Not so much. We're more inclined to say, I will pray for you. Now, prayer is a good thing, but people needing that kind of help, uh, they don't need our prayers. They need a place to stay, or companionship, or food, or clothing, or a job, or something else tangible, which we may have the ability to provide. But we don't. The Apostle James talked about this when he said in James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is about clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and Jesus loves you and I'll pray for you, he says, and yet, you, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Um, notice, James was using the language of family. He was talking to the church. Now, we can change things and make our spiritual family the best of families. We can cause that to happen if we get to know each other well. If we start regularly spending time with different people in the church, eating with each other, helping each other, then walls and divisions will come down and we will be knit together. Uh, the implication is that many of us may need to rethink what the church is and our relationship with the church. Is the church our primary source of identity? For many people, the answer is no. Yet this is why Christ created the church and created it as a family. Now, what we have been saying here applies to the church as a corporate body and not just to individuals within the church. We need to know each other our needs and our resources well. Do we, as a church, have a process for providing assistance to people in need or connecting those in need with those in the church who might be able to meet that need? Now, there are many ways a church can do this. I know of one church that has a bulletin board uh, where people can post various needs or resources that they have. It could be some physical thing, uh, like you know, some physical thing they're looking for or something they want to sell or give away. It could be the need for a roommate, but it could be anything. I read of one church that wanted to become more missional, and so the elders met with all of the individual members or families 
uh, in the church and asked them a series of questions, including, what do you enjoy doing? Where do you see God at work right now? What would you like to see God do in your life over the next six to 12 months? How can we help that happen? How would you like to serve other people? And how can we help facilitate that? And how can we pray for you? Now, these questions were geared toward becoming more uh, missional and becoming more engaged with their community, but they could be adapted for anything. And by doing this, the church leadership was getting to know its people better and was demonstrating that it cared about them. Now, Christopher Yuan, in his book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, adds one more point that many of us may not think about too much. He says this, I cannot stress too much how crucial spiritual family is for singles. We have no family of our own, no spouse to hold when we lie in bed, no kids to return to after a rough and tiring day. For many, it's just an empty, dark and cold apartment. If the family of God were actually the family of God, then not having a physical family wouldn't really matter because we'd have real family, a family that is eternal. I'd have spiritual brothers and sisters to hold me and comfort me and love me and point me to Christ. In other words, Families take care of their own. Now, I read of a man who had been married for 60 years and he loved his wife very much, and then she died. Now, some of his friends tried to comfort him by saying, don't you look forward to the day when you will be reunited with your wife in heaven? Well, he responded, I won't have a wife in heaven because Jesus said in the age to come there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. But I certainly am looking forward to being fully united with Christ. You see, the church is Christ's body as well as his family. And Ephesians 1 verse 23 also describes the church as the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, since the church is his body, his fullness, as well as his family, the closer and more involved we get with the church will mean the closer we will get to Christ. And that will apply both now and then forever on the new heaven and the new earth. But the opposite is also true. What I mean is this. As we get closer to Christ, we will get closer to each other. Think of it like this. Think of our relationships with Christ and with others uh, who are united with Christ as a wheel. Christ is the hub and we are along the rim of the wheel. Now, as we move down the spokes closer to the hub, closer to Christ, we will also be getting closer to each other. Now this should tell us something. Our relationships with other people, particularly our relationships with other believers, 
is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. Everything we do in life is spiritual. The nature of our life and our relationships is revealing something about our spiritual life that we may not be aware of. So let us see what, is, what this is saying to us and make the changes in our relationships, both with Christ and others, that we need to make to truly be close to Christ and close to each other as a living family. Now, God takes his family seriously because it is his family. And we need to take it just as seriously. The church is the only organization that Jesus founded, but it is more than just an organization. It is a family. It is a family that will be together forever. He has created us as a family because he knows that we are often beaten up by the world. We face all kinds of pressures and stresses in school, on the job, financially, in our health, in our relationships, and in all the other circumstances of life. What Jesus wants for his church, his family, is that when we are together, we should have the feeling, ah, I'm home. This is my real home. I'm loved and accepted by the people who are closest to me in the whole world, and Jesus is right here with us. Now, most of us know from our earthly families how deeply satisfying that kind of feeling can be because, again, blood is thicker than water. But the potential for God's family, the church, far exceeds even the best of earthly families. And the reason is because the blood that unites us is not type A, B, AB, or O. It is the blood of Christ. So let's start working to make this a living reality this year in this family. Now that leads us to verses three through eight, where Paul says this. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now in this section, Paul is talking about an important implication of the fact that the church is a family. And he is also showing us the interrelation between the church and our earthly families. The implication he is talking about is that because families take care of their own, the church has an obligation to take care of those who cannot care for themselves. 
However, Paul also realizes that not all churches have the resources to care for all of its needy family members. Therefore, the earthly family members need to step up and help those in need when they are able to do so. Now, Paul begins by saying, honor widows who are widows indeed. The English Standard Version phrases it, honor widows who are truly widows. The New King James says, honor widows who are really widows. Now, the words truly and really are the important qualifying words there. They correspond to widows indeed of the New American Standard. The context clearly indicates that to honor uh, here refers to providing material support for needy widows. Now, the word indeed, or truly, or really, shows that Paul is making a distinction between different types of widows. Now, by definition, a widow is any woman whose husband has died. Therefore, in one sense, any woman whose husband has died is a widow indeed, or a true widow, or a real widow. However, Paul's point here is not to define what a widow is. His point, and the point of this passage, is to describe which widows the church has an obligation to materially assist. Now that is shown in verses four and five. Those verses talk about widows who have children or grandchildren versus widows who are left alone and therefore have no means of support. Now Paul realizes both in his day and in ours, that a church may not have the resources to assist every needy person. And also, there are some widows who do not require assistance. But Paul is saying that the church is obligated to assist those widows who have no other means of support. Now we need to understand that Paul's own culture forms the basis for what he says here. Because in Paul's society, there were no welfare programs or other non-family sources of support. So family was crucial. That's why he says that a widow first must go to her children or grandchildren for support before coming to the church. But the responsibility of the children or grandchildren to support a widow was more than just a matter of mercy. When verse four says that children have to make some return to their parents, what it is saying is that children are not doing their parents a favor when they care for them. They are repaying a debt. Uh, verse eight likewise points out that earthly family members have a moral obligation to provide for their own. And failure to do so makes one worse than an unbeliever. Now verse 16 summarizes this whole section by repeating that those who have dependent widows must assist them in order that the church is not burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now Paul has been focusing on caring for destitute widows. 
But we need to understand that his focusing on widows is simply an example of the type of people one should care for. The reason he's focusing on widows is that widows were the most vulnerable and dependent people in ancient society. In that culture, most women were not able to have a formal education and could not work in paid employment. Their security was based on getting married, but that left them totally dependent upon their husbands. The fact that Paul's reference to widows is an example of the types of needy people the church should help is seen in verse 4, which refers to uh, making some return to their parents, and in verse 8, which talks about a person providing for his own. Both of those statements extend the principle of helping the needy beyond simply widows. Now, the principles Paul discusses here may be adapted and applied to other classes of needy people, such as old men, the unemployed, orphans, people with dementia, the physically disabled, the mentally ill, etc., etc. Paul is merely giving a more detailed description of the general principle found in James 1, verse 27, where James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to remain unstained by the world. Now from this passage in 1 Timothy 5, two principles emerge. First, consider the person's need. Is the person who is seeking assistance truly needy, or does the person have family or other means of support? Now, Paul's whole discussion here was based on the situation in his own culture and society, and his culture was considerably different from ours. As a result, although the general principles he mentions here carry over and apply to us today, the specifics may not. For example, today, Women have the same education as men, and most work in paid employment. Widows today have a range of opportunities unavailable to widows in Paul's day. Government benefits, insurance, 401ks, social security, inheritance, investments, or other sources of support may be available. None of those things were available in Paul's day. So when people seek assistance from the church today, all of those things need to be taken into consideration. But one way or another, we need to make sure that our spiritual family members are taken care of because they are family and families take care of their own. Now second, the second principle that emerges here in assessing whether to provide material assistance to somebody, verses five and six suggest that one also consider a person's attitude, character, and lifestyle. Is the person humble or arrogant? Is the person planning on continuing a lifestyle of overt sinfulness or not? 
is the person trusting in God or not? Now, many people who come to the church seeking help will not be Christians and may have lived very sinful lives. But if those people come to the church with an attitude of humility, the church should try to help them. By helping them, an opening is gained for telling them about Jesus Christ. Now, people in earthly families take all of these things into consideration when a family member needs help. Paul is saying that the same things apply to our spiritual family. And he builds on this in the next section, verses 9 through 16, where Paul says this, a widow is not, uh, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things that are not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children and keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, when Paul talks about putting someone on the list, he is probably referring to widows whom the church would support for as long as they lived. It is possible that they were enrolled in some form of official ministry in exchange for their being uh, supported by the church. And many commentators believe that the list referred to an order or office of widows in which enrolled widows were given ecclesiastical duties of prayer and charitable service to others in exchange for being materially supported by the church. Now this is so uh, because the requirements in verses 9 and 10 are not identical with those in verse 5 and the qualifications listed in verses 9 and 10 are similar to uh, of the qualifications for others in formal church ministry, such as are found in chapter 3. In fact, uh, the church later did form an order of widows based on this passage, and the order of widows persisted well into the 4th century. One commentator says, women leaders were thought to be particularly well suited for ministries of prayer and practical service, including those in which it would not have been appropriate for men to be involved, especially counseling, visiting, catechizing, and baptizing other women. Although the text does not strictly require or demand that interpretation, since the church did historically use widows in ministry in exchange for material support, the church today should consider doing something similar. Older people have a wealth 
of experience and wisdom that can and should be put to use for edifying and building up the rest of the body of Christ. Now the age 60 requirement in verse nine is not a law that applies universally. And again, that was based on the situation in Paul's own culture. 60 was the recognized age throughout the ancient world when a person was considered old. <laughs> and one writer says that 60 probably reflects the maximum age in antiquity up to which an individual reasonably could be expected to work and provide for themselves. In fact, in the first century, fewer than 4% of women lived even to the age of 50. So women more than 60 years old were truly old in that society and would not have been expected to live for many more years. Also, once a woman turned 60, there was no or very little chance that she would again remarry. By contrast, uh, today, 60 years old is not considered particularly old. In fact, if you call a 60-year-old person old, he or she probably will feel insulted. <laughs> After all, as the saying goes, 60 is the new 40. Uh, the 60-year-old requirement implied something far different in Paul's day uh, than it does uh, today. And so today, if Paul were writing this, he might say, don't put a widow on the list unless she's at least 80 or 85. The fact that Paul's suggestion about putting women on the list is based on his, old, uh, on his own culture is clearly seen in his discussion of younger widows in verses 11 through 15. There, he is talking about them getting married, since that pretty much was their only option in his culture. But today, we would talk about them getting an education and a job. In essence, the church should help the poor and needy become self-sustaining. Most needy people would rather be self-sustaining rather than simply beg for handouts. Now, Paul's discussion of caring for the poor and needy in this passage primarily concerned people within the church, but the principles he is talking about are equally applicable to people outside of the church. He's really giving specific examples of the general principle he stated in Galatians 6 verse 10 where he said, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially those who are in the household of the faith. Now the church can help people become self-sustaining in various ways. You already have the Freedom Center food pantry. The concept of an order of widows is another idea. Other suggestions might be offering uh, employment to needy persons, but that will require knowing who in your congregation may have a business or need of domestic help or otherwise can offer employment to people. We also should know what resources are available in our community. 
Now, a pastor I know in central Kenya has gotten to know the owners of hotels, restaurants, and gas stations in his town. He has a good reputation in his town and has been able to place in employment uh, a number of people needing jobs who have come to his church. We need to be aware of the resources and opportunities available to us, both within and outside the church. The key is that the church needs to be engaged with the community. Most churches would like people from the community to come to us on Sundays. But most of us are not too intentional about going to them, engaging them, finding out their needs and their resources. Now, all churches have different kinds of resources. There's land, uh, physical resources, land, buildings, and equipment. There are financial resources, income uh, and money. And there are personal resources, people and their time, talents, and contacts. The primary issue is a matter of priorities. What a church does with its resources reveals what it finds truly important. Just as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ was engaged with his community, particularly in northern Israel, in Galilee, where he was from and where his ministry began. He engaged with people. He saw their needs and he did something about them. And look at the results. What about us? Is showing love for people in practical ways what characterizes us? Because you see, doing that, in doing that, we are limited only by our creativity and our imagination. And again, we are called to do good to all people, but especially those in our family, the church. So let me conclude by saying this. In today's passage, Paul has shown us that the church is a family, and families take care of their own. And this includes the material as well as the spiritual. This principle extends to people beyond the family. Uh, in fact, as you may have seen from uh, helping others through the food pantry, showing the love of Christ in practical ways to others is one way to increase the size of the family itself. Ultimately, the issue is not just providing material assistance to those in need or growing the size of the family. The issue is relationship, relationships of love. Paul made that clear at the beginning of this passage by talking about seeing and treating each other as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. By appealing to one another in love, by not sharply rebuking people, and by behaving in all purity. When we see, feel, and act like that to one another, we truly will be a loving family. It will be real, not feigned. When that happens, others will notice and they will want to become a part of a family like that because all people want to be loved and accepted for who they are 
by a family that truly cares about them. Then they and we will be able to have that great inner satisfaction of knowing this is my family. I'm home. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for creating this family, Lord God. You have designed it to last forever, and you have designed it to be closer than our earthly families. They're just the type. This is the reality. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would apply what you have said in your word to each one of us and help us turn this family, your family, into the close, loving family that you designed it to be for our own sake, but also for the sake of those out there who don't know you yet. But when they see us acting like a loving family, Lord God, draw them to yourself. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.